Hey there, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast in which we usually slow walk through Dante's masterwork comedy. This episode is a little different. In this episode, I would like to offer you a brief history of Satan. <laughs> I can't say that. I'm sorry. I know I couldn't say it without bursting out laughing. A brief history of Satan. It's going to be almost impossible to do this. But I thought it was really important to talk about the tradition of where Satan comes from since we're looking up at his three colored faces and since we're getting very close to this 1,300 foot, 400 meter, whatever he is, giant thing that's in the ice sheet of Cocytus, maybe it's really important to figure out something about the historical roots of this character. So on this episode of the podcast, interpolated into the middle of comedy, I'd like to just talk briefly and probably too simplistically, forgive me that, there are books, there are tomes, dissertations, volumes on the question of Satan, and I'm going to try to do this in just a few minutes, a little bit simplistically, but I think it's important to fill in the details. So here we go. If we talk about Satan in the Christian tradition, then we have to start talking about Satan in the Hebraic tradition from the Jewish scriptures or what the Christians call the Old Testament. And I think this is a really important place for us to start. This word, Satan, Satan, in Hebrew means adversary. Early on in the quote-unquote Old Testament or the Jewish scriptures, adversary can just mean war adversary. The Canaanites, other people who are opposed to the Hebrew settlement where they're headed in the quote-unquote holy land. Later, it picks up the definite article in Hebrew and becomes hasatan. And once it becomes hasatan, then suddenly it becomes the adversary and everything seems to change. Early on, again, we're talking about military adversaries, but later in the Hebraic scriptures, let's say in the opening prelude to the book of Job, or in the vision of Zechariah the prophet in chapter 3, or in First Chronicles 21, one of the histories of the kingdoms of Israel and Judah, this adversary seems almost to be a court figure of God's heavenly kingdom, and seems seems to be almost like a prosecuting attorney, the figure who walks in to the court and says, hey, you know, you think that Job follows you, and that's only because you've given him a lot of good things. Take away those good things and let's see what happens. Or the same with Zechariah in his vision in the third chapter of of Zechariah. There's this figure, Hasatan, this figure of the adversary who stands opposed to the high priest and kind of accuses him and says, look at this one. I mean, this is what you've got as a high priest God down in your temple. Look at this filthy guy in his filthy clothes, which is how the prophecy goes. Again, a kind of legal adversary, somebody who opposes God in court, not what you now think of as Satan after seeing way too many horror films and seeing way too many horror series on TV. Not that. And not the red horn devil thing. Think instead really good prosecuting attorney. And God's court apparently sits and waits for the adversary to come. The adversary comes in. He says, you know, look at Job. 
And then the book of Job happens. This figure is an illegal adversary, somebody who argues against God for the goodness of God's high priests, God's followers. This begins to change in Hebraic traditions during what's called the intertestamental periods or those periods, 200 years, let's say, between the finishing up of what we now call the Old Testament and the starting of what we now call the New Testament. During this period, there was a unbelievable abundance, a flourishing of apocalyptic visions of the end of the world. And these apocalyptic visions suddenly started to give this figure of the adversary bigger and bigger roles. He became sometimes a military leader, someone who led the people's of the earth astray, someone engaged in a final battle for good and evil with God. These are all visions in non-canonical books, but they're flowing around the Hebraic scriptures, or again, what Christians call the Old Testament. There are two places in the Old Testament where Christians particularly do their magic with the text and change it a bit. The first is in Genesis chapter 3, the story of the fall of Adam and Eve. If you remember, the serpent, who is said to be the craftiest or the most clever of all of God's creatures, comes to tempt Eve to ask her to eat of the forbidden fruit. Christians down the road, long down the road from rabbinic scholars, Christians begin to interpret this serpent as Satan. It's not so identified in the Genesis passage. Rather, the emphasis seems to be on the wiliness or the craftiness of the serpent, not an embodiment of evil, rather a trickster figure. The other place where Christians move the text a bit is in Isaiah 14. In Isaiah 14, one of the prophecies collected under the name of the prophet Isaiah has this son of the morning star who seems to challenge God. We are probably talking about an apocalyptic vision from a prophet who is basically saying, look, even if some ruler of the earth puffed himself, and I take it, given the times, it would be a himself, puffed himself up so big that he thought he could challenge God, Tower of Babelish could challenge God, he would be thrown down because no one can challenge God. Christian scholars begin to interpret this Lucifer figure, the morning star Lucifer, as Satan, and this as a story of Satan's fall bound into the prophecies of Isaiah, and that Satan, this angel, essentially attempted to raise himself to the height of God or maybe even above God and then was thrown down. Where do Christians get the impetus to do such things? They get them partially from the stories of Jesus that become written after the death of Jesus. There are two key moments that we have to talk about. One is the temptation of Jesus. 
In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is taken out into the desert by what is first called the tempter, and then later the devil, and then later in that same story, Satan. The tempter tempts Jesus to divert from his primary mission to aggrandize himself in some fundamental way. Throw yourself off a cliff or a tall building and survive, and everybody will say, oh, wow, look at you. You are really something special. In other words, to throw the light on himself and not the mission of salvation. Again, in this passage, it's first the tempter, Then we're told that the tempter is the devil, and at the end of it, Satan is named by Jesus. This is a figure who kind of subverts the mission of salvation itself. In the last written canonical gospel of John, which is not the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but the last written gospel of John, in chapter 13, when Judas betrays Jesus, it is said that Satan enters into him. In fact, at the last Passover, what Christians call the Last Supper, when Jesus says, you know, one of you is going to betray me, and essentially at that moment, Satan enters, and it's Satan in the text, Satan enters into Judas, and then Jesus says to Judas, you know, go and do what you have to do quickly. No, don't, don't, don't dally, which Judas then leaves and does. Again, this figure apparently is somebody who is interested in stopping the progress of salvation, but who is ultimately thwarted. And I think that that is really important for us to see, somebody who is thwarted. Why? Because that plays into the medieval notion of who Satan is. In the Middle Ages, Satan is more than just these figures out of the biblical accounts, but less than he is in the current day. Mostly in the Middle Ages, Satan is a comic figure easily duped, somebody who tries to thwart salvation but can't do it. In the Golden Legend, written in 1260, which Dante may well have known, Satan appears in many of the saints' stories. Every single time, Satan is essentially an idiot who a saint easily outwits. There's no contest at all. Instead, it's almost a clownish figure, maybe a little threatening, Think about here, too, medieval street plays. A clownish figure, there was a lot of flatulence associated with the devil. There's a lot of very bawdy stuff with the devil in medieval plays. Very comic figure. But there is trouble brewing on the horizon. The trouble is the notion that God and Satan are in some kind of duel for the ultimate fate of the universe. And you could hear that already in that apocalyptic literature written in the intertestamental period. Dualism starts to threaten the church. That is that there are two main forces in the universe. There's a force of good, God, and there's a force of evil, Satan. The church 
puts this down succinctly and finally at the fourth Lateran Council in 1215. Think how late this is. 1215, we're only 100 years before Dante's writing the comedy. The church codifies the notion that Satan and the demons are fallen angels. They were created good by God, and they chose an evil path. Why is this important? Because A, God cannot create a bad thing. Some dualist heresies have God creating the evil that is Satan. The church's position is that God cannot create a bad thing. God is good to the core, and therefore everything God creates is good. Therefore, he cannot have made an evil thing called Satan Only Satan can have fallen of his own accord. There's one little bit of alternate history here that it's important to mention. And that is the introduction of Neoplatonic thought into Christian theology through theologians like Origen. In Neoplatonic thought, and Dante eats this up, Evil is absence, and goodness is presence. In fact, Western thought is predicated on the notion of presence, not absence. It's one of the great things as a teacher to try to get students to understand Orthodox Christianity or alternate religious traditions in which absence is actually the presence of God. But that's a much bigger discussion. In Western thought, presence is the quality of being, not absence. And in Neoplatonic thought, absence is evil. This enters into the stream of Dante's thought because Satan is immobile in the ice sheet, not moving. The universe is spinning. The spheres are spinning. And you will find out in the Paradiso that Dante believes that the spheres of the heaven are spinning because of love. Love equals motion. If love equals motion, then Dante has to walk to Beatrice. Then Dante has to walk to God. Love equals motion. Non-motion, stasis, That's evil. That's lack. That's emptiness. That's Satan. I want to just stop and draw a line. It is very hard to see Satan as I just described him as the adversary, as the tempter, as the one who tries to thwart redemption. All of this has to do with Satan's relationship to God. It's very hard for modern listeners, modern readers like me, to see that Satan in this theology doesn't have anything to do with me. Satan has everything to do with God and God's court. It is hard to see Satan in a Dantean context as depicted because we are post-Salem witch trials. We are post-Protestant Reformation in which the Protestants become obsessed with the fact that that Satan or the devils can jump out from behind any tree and grab me. This is not medieval thought. 
necessarily, and this is certainly not biblical thought, and it's certainly not Hebraic thought. We now live post-Salem witch trials, post-Protestant Reformation, post-horror films, post-The Exorcist, post-Stranger Things, all that. We live post that. Try to cut it off. Try to think about Satan as a comic blocking figure in medieval mystery and in medieval comic street plays. Try to think about Satan as an adversary against God. Try to see Satan here not as threatening the pilgrim, but as being as far from God as possible. Satan never threatens the pilgrim in comedy. The pilgrim is scared. Why is he scared? Because he's come to this gigantic figure, because this figure has three faces, but mostly because this is the farthest place you can get from God. Therefore, the pilgrim is afraid, not because Satan is going to grab him, not because Satan is going to do him bodily harm, but because This represents the final separation from anything that could be classified as good in Dante's neoplatonically tinged Christian theology. Okay, that was an absurdly fast introduction to Satan, a ridiculously quick oversimplification of a very complicated figure. So much has been written on this figure that it defies all logic to even try to talk about Satan, but hey, I gave it a go. And what I wanted really from this episode is to tell you, don't think about The Exorcist, don't think about Stranger Things, cut off all that modern stuff, cut off Little Red Riding Hood and the wolf in the woods and jumping out behind trees and grabbing you, and try to see this Satan in Dante for the tradition it's coming out of, which is not as elaborate as our modern notions of Satan. Subscribe to this podcast, rate it, do all those things that you need to do, and we're going to get closer to this figure at the center of the universe in the next episode of Walking with Dante. So I'm Mark Scarborough, and I'll see you then.